guy tells a story. He says, a few years ago, I had the chance to become a hero. However, it didn't turn out that, didn't turn out that way for me. He said he was, he was in China on a tour group. He said our tour bus was on a way to a scenic spot with another tour bus in front. He says it was snowing and the road was muddy. Suddenly, the bus ahead of us skidded off the road, tipped over on its side into a rice field. He said, I quickly jumped off my tour bus. I ran to the overturned bus and I jumped on top. He said, windows were shattered and people inside were obviously hurt. The emergency door, which I saw, was facing upward, so I, I grabbed the handle of the emergency door and I pulled. Nothing happened. What an open. So what did I do? I, I pulled harder. I kept on pulling with all my might. Pulling, pulling, pulling. It wouldn't budge. He said, by this time, others had come and were pulling people out through the windows, so I gave up on the door and I joined them. After I moved away from the door, another man came along, easily turned the handle to the door, popped it open. That I suddenly realized why the door didn't open for me. I'd been standing on it the whole time. <laughs> With good intentions to save lives, I had actually become the biggest obstacle to them. I remember a time back in the Navy when I first became a Christian. That was me. Instead of a vehicle, I was an obstacle. I didn't have a problem proclaiming the gospel. I had a problem living out the gospel, living out my faith. Matter of fact, it took an unbeliever to pull me aside and ask me what on earth I was doing. Learned pretty quickly. What's it mean to live out our faith? Well, I think we're going to see in this passage that the end result of a faith that is lived out, a faith that is lived out in accordance with the principles and the characteristics of the gospel is a faith that is going to have a very positive effect on the people around us. And we are not roadblocks to people coming to faith, but we are actually vehicles used by God to bring them to faith. This is a beautiful, beautiful picture of the early church, what the early church prioritized and what it looked like to live out faith in the context of community and surrounded by people who didn't believe in Jesus. It's a picture of the early church, but it should be a picture of our church, folks. This is what I want a picture of Galilee to look like. This is it. These past two, two weeks 
what they devoted themselves to, the preaching of the gospel, teaching and fellowship, the breaking of bread, and here how they live out their faith, what characterized their faith, and the end result of what God did through that. Living out our faith in Jesus Christ, in a society that does not know him. This is a transformed community. And because they're a transformed community and allowing the Holy Spirit to work through them, the community around them is then transformed. We're going to look at four characteristics of this lived out faith and then the end result of that that is found in this passage today. So the first characteristic of a lived out faith, it is an awe-inspiring faith, verse 43. Everyone, both believers and unbelievers, kept feeling a sense of awe. And many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. The writer begins with this. Remember those times when you have gazed at a, a wonderful painting or heard beautiful music, or see the beautiful colors of a sunset. You know that feeling that you get. It's a sense of awe. It's a sense of inspiration, sense of reverence. Well, the Wall Street Journal actually wrote about the importance of awe in our lives and all the effects and benefits that it can have including stronger health to improved relationships. These experiences tend to make us humble and empathetic and trusting, even help us battle depression. Elizabeth Bernstein writes this about all what it is. It is an emotional response to something vast, and it challenges and expands our way of seeing the world. Researchers conclude that awe minimizes our individual identity and attunes us to things bigger than ourselves. Let me ask you a question. Do you live out your faith in such a way that inspires awe, a holy reverence in others? That's exactly what is taking place here. The church explodes... 3,000 people are saved. These 3,000 people, among others, then dedicate themselves to the apostles' teaching, to prayer, to fellowship, to breaking of bread. And the people around them are looking at this transformed people, this body of believers, and they're wondering what on earth is going on. They're inspired. They're in awe, they're in shock. So is everyone within the believing community as well. The early church was so genuine and lived such transformed lives filled with God's spiritual power 
that a sense of wonder and awe was upon everyone who was there. Do we live lives in such a fashion? People, by looking at these transformed lives, these works of art, could not help but see the master was working. And it resulted in reverential fear and wonder. I love artwork. It's one of my weaknesses, much to my wife's chagrin, because I always pick up paintings that we don't need and think they're the next Picasso. But I like looking at artwork. I like studying artwork. I like seeing all the details of it. I like appreciating the beauty of it, just like you do. Go in, you see people just staring at a painting in an art museum, and it pulls you out of yourself, and it inspires you. But you also, when you look at that painting, who who are you thinking about? The person who painted it. Folks, that, that is a picture of the Christian life. We are God's what? Workmanship. He is, he is creating masterpieces in us. And as we allow him to transform our lives into the image of Christ, that which is a what type of image? A holy image. We are going to inspire people who see that and they're going to wonder, what on earth is going on here? That's what's happening in the early church. Yes, they had the miracles and the wonders that that contributed to this, but what is the miracle and the wonder that is happening that God is doing through his spirit today? It's sanctification in our own lives, isn't it? Holy lives, transformed lives, lives that are sold out for Jesus Christ, lives that are loving one another, lives that are dedicating that life to the fellowship and to the priorities of God's kingdom Those are lives that are going to inspire all. And the people, both the believers and unbelievers, caught this sense that God is really, really doing something here. Does the church inspire much all today? If not, why? One gentleman says, People aren't awed by the church or it doesn't instill much fear today because the professing church accepts such low standards for its fellowship. Lying, immorality, questionable doctrine, deception, even perversion. Is that awe-inspiring? I really like what MacArthur says about this. He says they weren't awed by the church because of its buildings. They didn't have buildings. I mean, they had the temple. They weren't awed by the church because of its programs. They weren't awed by the church because it was, it was cool or anything reflecting human ability, but they were awed because of the supernatural characteristic of its life. That's what they were awed by. We can have the greatest programs. We can all look real nice. Our building can look really nice. And the core team, you've done a wonderful job in doing just that. That is not what is to all people, is it? What is to all people is our lives, reflecting God's character in a society that doesn't do that. That is what is to inspire people. As a matter of fact, 
when we have that type of reverence and fear, others are going to see that and respond, hopefully, in kind. Hebrews 12, 28 through 29, therefore, since we have received a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful, so worship God, how? Acceptably, with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. We recognize God's holiness that prompts us through the power of his spirit to a life of holiness. People see that and they're like, okay, something is different. It's an awe-inspiring faith. Second characteristic, it is a sharing, actually a giving faith. You can, you can change that. I, I changed that. It's not sharing, it's giving. I'm sorry. <laughs> it is a giving faith or a sharing faith, same, same thing. Verses 44 and 45. And those who had believed were together, and they had all things in common. They began selling their property and possessions, and were sharing, and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. People who might be visiting are probably like, I hope this pastor doesn't ask me to sell my house right now. That's not going to happen. Don't worry. But if you want to, no one's going to stop you. In in Malawi, guy tells, says this story, practically anyone, any, any, any shoe in Malawi is a luxury. Lilongwe, the capital he says, is maybe the, the only African city where I have seen grown men walking down the streets barefoot. They are ashamed, he says. And I know that, but they have no choice. He says, so I wasn't not surprised when I took our college basketball team from Wheaton to practice to the first practice in the African Bible College gym. And there were two Malawians in the gym, and they were scrimmaging. However, they looked a little different. How were they playing basketball? Well, they both only had one shoe on. He said, several of our players began to immediately snicker and point out to one another how funny it was that these guys were playing with one shoe on and one shoe off. One of them turned to this gentleman's twin brother who had lived in Malawi for more than 10 years and was coaching the Malawian basketball national team. And he asked, he said, they asked why these guys were playing basketball in just one shoe. His answer was sobering. He said, one of the guys showed up today with no shoes. His friend didn't want him to be ashamed when you arrived. So he lent him one of his own. Now they both have at least one shoe. And the laughter stopped. One of the 
earliest statements, Tertullian writes, that was said about the early Christian church was see how they care and love for one another. See how they care and love for one another. A faith that is lived out affects our relationships with others, affects our relationship with God, it affects our relationship with this world and the goods in it, doesn't it? It's lived out very practically. And our relationship to these earthly possessions and our relationship to others is shown by how we treat these things. The priorities of those relationships. We are willing to lose a shoe so that the other may have it. They were holding all things in common. This is where we get the word for fellowship. So their fellowship was giving of their time, it was giving of themselves, and it was giving of their possessions. That's how they fellowshiped with one another. This is not communism. Communism and socialism is mandated, and we want to stress that. And, and this is definitely a unique situation within the early church because of the result of all of these people coming to faith and then just staying there in Jerusalem. But this is the result of God's Spirit working in the lives of these transformed individuals to see people the way God wants them to see them, as much more valuable and much more important than our earthly wealth or our possessions. That's a lived out faith. Faith, a true faith, affects the way in which we relate to this world and the goods within it. We no longer strive after the material possessions of this world, but we use those possessions to encourage others, to help others, and to promote God's kingdom. That was a radical faith. That was the faith of the early church, and I, that, I hope and praise, the faith of this church. Holding all things in common. Do you think we have enough stuff to share in this country? I think that's a good heart and attitude to have. Today, Dad is constantly being collected about our stuff. And we're stuffed. About our homes, about our shopping habits, and about our spending. Research is confirming the observation. We own way too much stuff and is actually hindering our lives. These are some of the statistics and they're kind of shocking. There, there are over 300,000 items in the average American home, 300,000 items. And still one, in, one out of every 10 Americans rent offsite storage. It is the fastest growing segment of the commercial real estate industry over the past four decades. 
British research found that the average 10-year-old owns 238 toys, but only plays with 12 of them. Yeah, there you go. People are like, five, one, the box they came in. The average American woman, sorry ladies, owns 30 outfits, one for every day of the month. Now, I'm, I'm just as guilty. I got a lot of shirts. Try to weed them out. Guess what the, the, the tally was in, in 1930? It was only nine outfits. We don't save money, but, many of our, but our homes have more television sets than people, and those TV sets are turned on for more than a third of the day. Our stuff is hindering our life and hindering our relationships with others. Folks, their stuff didn't hinder their lives. As a matter of fact, they use their stuff to enrich the lives of others. I'm not saying that we go sell everything. I'm not saying we can't have stuff or, or things in our life that we can enjoy. That, that's not what I'm saying, but we need to see the heart behind this. They had a very, very generous heart. Nobody was in need. They made sure of it. They, they lived out their faith practically. They didn't just live it out with their voice. They lived it out with their things and the, the, their possessions and their lives and their behavior and their actions. It's living out. We say we have another home. We say we have treasure in heaven, but which home are we pursuing? Where are we storing up that treasure? There you go. Amen. Well, not amen, but not good. I had an opportunity to do a funeral this past week for a man named Paul David Smith, Mark Remington's father-in-law. I walked away from that extremely convicted by this man's life. The place was packed with people. And there was a refrain that was repeated. This man was a man who did not treasure the things of, of this world, but he treasured the people in it. And the people present were a testimony to that. Where are our priorities at as a church, as individual Christians? Are we holding all things in common or are we allowing those things to keep a hold of us? The outside community was watching. They saw all of this. And their response was, see how they care and love for one another. It's funny because in the commentators on this or people who were writing about this, they, they really emphasize the fact that this isn't communism, which is good, right? We want to emphasize that. But I think in, in the caution, we, we actually lose the heart of it. Luke is trying to 
tell us the heart of what the early church looked like. It, it was a heart of generosity. Why? Well, because Christ was generous, wasn't he? Christ was rich, but yet became what? Poor for us. Christ gave us what we needed. And he did so to do what? Take away our shame. It's like that basketball player did. Gave his shoe. Third aspect or third characteristic of this lived out faith, it is a daily faith. Verses 46 through 47, the first part of 47. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple, breaking bread from house to house, they were taking meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God. There's an old story about a mother walks in on her six-year-old son and finds him just sobbing. I'm sure that's a common story for many mothers. She looks at him and she says, Honey, what's the matter? You okay? Composes himself as best as he can. He says, Mom, I just figured out how to tie my shoes. He looks at him somewhat confused, but understands that there's a struggle of autonomy versus doubt. And she says, well, you're, that's wonderful. You're, you're growing up. But why are you crying? Now I'm going to have to do it every day for the rest of my life. <laughs> At least he's honest, right? At least he's honest. Folks, face like tying your shoes. <laughs> Every day for the rest of your life. Luke emphasizes, and we see it appear again, actually at the end, when he tells the result of this livid, living out their faith on a daily basis. On a daily basis, every day, day by day. You'd be like, day by day, Pastor Mark, if I had to see you day by day, guess what? <laughs> I'm moving. I'm going to another country. But they're spending time together. And again, unique situation. But the principle behind it is, is that here they are. They 3,000 get saved and it's not like this great big conference in Jerusalem and they meet for a couple days and then they all go home and what? All go back to their lives and nothing changes. Every day, day in and day out, they lived out their faith. And this is what it looked like. And the specifics of what it looked like, even in these two verses right here. When we become believers in Jesus Christ, our lives change. That change should be reflected daily. Daily. Every day. 
Our priorities change. Our character changes. Our friends change. The people who we spend the most time with changes. Everything changes. Yes, we're going to go through highs and lows in our Christian life, but notice that these individuals do not have this wonderful conversion experience and then live as if nothing happened. And sometimes today, Christians rely on, we, people go to a conference for a weekend, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to change, everything's going to this and that, and everything's great, and you go away from the conference, and what happens? You go back to the same old humdrum life and disobedience or whatever it may be. No, they were radically transformed, and this transformation affected everything they did day in and day out. The Christian walk is a long, slow walk of obedience and faith, one step and one day at a time. And we see what that looks like here. They, they made a, a priority in their schedules to do what? Meet together to be together, to encourage each other in the faith, to break bread together. And then we see the character of what that daily faith looked like on top of what we've already been discussing. And I would say everything that is combined here and the character in which they carried out their faith their attitude of selfless love for one another and their giving to those who in need was such a draw to outsiders. They lived out their faith on a daily basis in unity. They were all together. They were all unified. They had one goal, one faith, one Lord, one spirit. Unified. One of the big aspects of this daily faith in which they lived out. They lived out their faith with great joy. I could go on for quite some time on this aspect and I would include myself in it. Seems there are a lot of grumpy, joyless Christians out there right now, doesn't it? What do we have to complain about? Again, I say this to myself. Here they are. They don't have much when it comes to material possessions, do they? But they have a lot when it comes to spiritual possessions. Their joy is found in who? Jesus Christ. Their joy is found in their salvation. Their joy is found in their new relationship that they have with these individuals. Their joy is found in the Lord. Their joy is found in their faith. (laughs) They're joyful Christians. They're happy Christians. And that joy becomes very contagious to others. Here we are. We have a plethora of stuff, but guess what? We're joyless. Why? Maybe we're not focusing on the right possessions that we have. We tend to complain about what we don't have and forget about everything we do have or better who we have. Their joy was not found in their stuff. Their joy was found in their faith in Christ and the new bond they had with one another. 
Another reason for this joy also was the result of their sharing with one another in sincerity. This word is an interesting word because it's only found here in the New Testament. It appears one time here in the New Testament. The idea behind it, this was extremely convicting. The idea behind it means to be free from rocks. Free from rocks. I think you can imagine what that means, right? Can you imagine if you had rocks in your heart? Let me ask you something. You have rocks in your heart. <laughs> Do you think you're going to be pretty joyful? No. MacArthur, I think, gets it right. And he says they were free from the rocks of selfishness. They loved others. They loved others sacrificially. They loved Christ. They didn't love their possessions. Their hearts were free from rocks. Dump the rocks. Rejoice in Christ because that's what they did. The daily faith that they lived out was one of praise, one of thanksgiving. They were praising God and giving thanks to all that he has done, all that he has done, is doing for them, and will do. They pointed to the right person. Notice they're not praising everything that they are doing. They're praising the one who is working in their hearts and minds. They're pointing the finger to God. They pointed to the one responsible for the gladness, their joy, pointed to the one who is responsible for the sincerity, who is responsible for the new and daily life that they have. For their selfless acts of giving, they praised God. They were a living witness to the community around them, and it had an absolute dramatic effect. Brings us to our fourth and final characteristic. It is an attractive faith. So not only did they continue in gladness and sincerity and in praising God, but they continued in favor with others, favor with the outside world, having favor with all people. They had a very attractive faith that was a summary, the result of what it looked like to live out their faith. The ad looks like this. This is the ad for a sermon series by a certain church. And the video for this sermon series is nothing short of absurd, one guy says. And the video has the voiceover on it. And it goes like this, over four weeks this September, Ed Young, oh, sorry, I wasn't supposed to say his name, sorry. This guy in this fellowship welcomed four legendary guests from the world of professional wrestling, Ric Flair, The Undertaker, The Million Dollar Man, and Sting. In the actual service... The sanctuary has the atmosphere of a wrestling arena. 
and the pastor comes out in the announcer voice, you know, the announcer voice standing six feet, two inches tall, weighing 250 pounds with 25 wrestling championship titles, WWE wrestling champion, Sting. And Sting comes out raising his hand. He goes, woo! And the congregation responds, woo! But it wasn't enough, woo! Because he did it again. And then the congregation responded again. And then the pastor sits down and he interviews this guy. And eventually he comes to the man's faith. And then he turns to the church and he says, I don't know if you guys know this, but this guy's a Christian. I hope so. And I hope people know it. He's in your church. And he's about to give some sort of insight into this passage, of course, that has to do with Jacob wrestling and whatnot. Folks, that's the type of attractive Christianity that we have today. And that's not the type of attractive Christianity that was found in the early church, was it? Why? And we go to two extremes, and we're going to talk about the second extreme in a second. Why? Why are we doing this? Well, I think it's because we lost our attractiveness. A genuine attractiveness. Can you imagine the early church... Today, we're going to have Spartacus here for one time and one time only. That's insanity. What's happening? We've lost this character, what it means to really live out our faith. And because we've lost this, we are resorting to methods like this. That is not how we attract people to Christianity. The early church grew in favor. It actually, the word can actually mean winning. It means to have a winning or an attractive quality that invites a favorable reaction. Let me ask you something. Do we live out our faith in, in a way that invites a favorable reaction? Are we living out our faith? Or are we, are we dependent upon methods like this? Or are we living out our faith in such a way that actually repulses people from it? Because not only this extreme, we go to the other extreme and that's aggressiveness, ugliness, unattractiveness. We become more concerned about winning a fight with our culture than actually winning the people in it. I was just having this conversation the other day with two folks from this church. We can have the right truth, folks, but we have to, we have to hold it. We have to hold that truth we have to live out our faith in accordance with the gospel, and we have to hold that truth with the right attitude. Two extremes. The life of the early church proclaimed the gospel boldly 
but also lived it out boldly. The life of the early church was characterized by the fruit of the Holy Spirit. That's attractiveness. Love. Love for Christ. Love for one another. Joy. Peace. Forbearance. Goodness. And kindness. Faithfulness. Daily living. Gentleness. Self-control. Is that not attractive? If you know an individual who's characterized by such fruit, is that not someone you want to be around? One article bemoans the loss of this type of attitude in the church and says that we're, we're pushing to be more aggressive. As a matter of fact, pastors who, who preach on turning the other cheek and loving your enemies or being winsome, and winsome doesn't mean weakness, it's boldness in faith, but living it out in such a way that invites this favorable reaction. He says, pastors that are preaching on, on these things are actually getting pushback from Christians in their congregation. You know it's pretty bad that we get pushback from Christians when we're preaching about what Jesus tells us to be like. We can be firm in our faith, we can be bold in our faith, but we must carry our faith with the right attitude. We have to aim to win people over. We have to live out our faith so that people see what our faith is all about. To live it out in accordance with the gospel. That's what they did. And God blessed their lives because of it. God brings others in when you and I live our faith out. It's not up there, is it? God brings others in when you and I Live our faith out and live it out like they did. Instead of being an obstacle to people coming to faith, notice what happens. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. There's that phrase again. It was a faith that they lived out day by day on a daily basis in accordance with the character of that faith and God blessed them because of it. It's God's prerogative to bring people in. That is undoubtedly seen here. But we need to live our faith out in order for God to do that, to work through us. And this is what it looks like to live our faith out. It is awe-inspiring. People are seeing God working among us, transforming our lives, loving one another, giving to one another. It's a, it's giving, it's a giving faith, a sharing faith, caring faith. 
It's an everyday aspect. We're not just faithful one day and then unfaithful the next day. We do it day in, day out, no matter how long it takes. It's a persevering faith. It is one that is extremely attractive to others as we live it out with gladness and sincerity and joy. We can live out our faith in two ways. We can block people from coming in that door, or we can swing those doors wide open. God brings others in. We live our faith out. Father, thank you for your word, and thank you for the life of the early church. They did not have the resources that we have. They did not have all the, the seminars and the training and the, the schooling and all of these things. They didn't have the, the, the monies that we have, Lord. They didn't have the, the structures that we have, Lord. They had your spirit. We have your spirit. And the same results that they had, Lord, you can do through us as well. Lord, I pray that you would help us do just that. Pray that you would see fit, Lord, to use this church for your glory. Lord, that we would not be obstacles to people coming to faith, Lord, but that we would be vehicles used by you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.